Hello and welcome to Unpacking Contract Law, the UK-based contract law podcast delivering unsolicited opinions on new and old contract law cases. The purpose of these podcasts is to provide you with an insight into our thoughts, ideas and ideologies around all things contract law. It also provides us with an outlet for all our opinions, so you listen at your own peril. Each podcast will feature a new contract law case with a discussion from three contract law enthusiasts. And it is thus my great pleasure to introduce you to Maggie Hemsworth, Severine Santier, and myself, Tim Dodsworth. Welcome to Unpacking Contract Law. Hello. Welcome. Thanks for joining us here, podcast number 17. As always, we're indebted to our sponsor, Um, of Unpacking Contract Law, Newcastle University Law School, but we'll tell you more about them as we get through the podcast. Today, we've got the rather exciting case of Barton and Morris. And exciting, I would say, not just because of the substance and because there's a lot in the case, but also because I think the three judgments will bring out some of our own differences in approach. I have the privilege of introducing the case and then the facts, and then to you know, fan the fire a little bit, and I'll be damned if I can't make some kind of sparks fly. (laughs) The facts of the case are surprisingly simple. Uh, Mr. Barton, an, I would say, unlucky, possibly untalented property developer. (gasps) Oh, that's not fair, is it? Uh, from (laughs) from, From what I can tell, at least, I would say he'd fallen in love with a place called Nash House. Nash House was owned by Fox Pace. On two occasions, Mr. Barton had attempted to buy the property, but each time he'd had to forfeit his deposit, and therefore he found himself at a loss of £1.2 million. That's a bit more than unlucky, I would say. Anyway, in order to recoup his loss, he first considered buying and then selling the property again, but he eventually decided to call Fox Pace and have a chat about it. There's some contention about exactly what was agreed, but it's quite clear that the only sums they discussed was a £1.2 million commission and £6.5 million as the purchase price. Now, working through the judgments, it seems that there's a consensus that both parties only really had the sale in mind at £6.5 million, and that neither had really put their mind to what would happen if the property sold for less. We can talk about that in a bit. You're already biased towards Leggett in the way you are describing the uh, facts, I would say. But no, you, you want everyone to be biased in direction of Leggett, <laughs> Severine. I can see it. I knew you couldn't hold back. <laughs> anyway, there was a consensus then that they were going to sell the property for 6.5 million and Mr. Barton was going to get 1.2 million. Mr. Barton then eventually introduced a seller, Weston, and they agreed to buy the property. However, they found there were some issues in relation to HS2 and therefore eventually reduced the purchase price to six million. Is that correct? I think Um, at least less than 6.5 million. After the sale, Mr. Barton then decided to claim his 1.2 million that he believed he was owed. And at first instance, Uh, The trial judge found that there was a unilateral contract that becomes important later on for 6.5 million uh, with a 1.2 million commission. The difficulty with that is, of course, they never reached that price. 
So what should the commission be? At the Supreme Court then, Lady Rose gave the leading judgment and she found there was no contract and she discussed in that context implied terms and also in interpretation and also there had been no unjust enrichment. Legat, dissenting, found that there was an implied term and that, he, that Mr Barton was due a reasonable price and Lord Bowers, also dissenting, also agreed there was an implied term and he should be repaid a reasonable price for his services. It all sounds so simple, but Severine Maggie, was the case decided correctly? I can see Severine's about to speak. I'll, I'll let you speak. Go on, and then I wow. disagree with you positively. <laughs> <laughs> this is a really interesting decision, as we were chatting before, as I was reading Lady Rose, thinking, yeah, that makes sense. You know, we usually tell our students, you know, what is not in the contract is as telling as what is in uh, the contract. That all seemed reasonable. And then I read uh, Lord Leggett's judgment and actually got persuaded that actually, you know, the implicit reasonable um, standards, etc., etc. So, no, I do not think um, the right decision uh, was arrived at. Oh, great. We've got a disagreement. <laughs> and what a surprise. Can I just point out the absolute surprise that Severine agreed with Legat? I mean, that's just, you know, knocked me off my yes. chair. Yeah, he even mentioned good faith. Only, you know, three words, you know, three lines. But, you know, yes. He, but he it, mentioned it, it twice. There. I wondered whether yeah. anyone had picked up on that. <laughs> he, he even managed to sneak in the words good faith twice in a judgment that has nothing to do with good faith. So why why do you say that dissenting judgment to be preferred, as they say? So the, yes, there is a contract. And so the 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 position you know i mean lord leggett's way of phrasing is beautiful yes i am a little bit biased but i think you know the language in <laughs> which he phrases things are very clear and so even though it's at times a tiny bit difficult to get when he was talking about the the strong sense of the the, the meaning of if and only if and you know I had to write things down and she hold on what is he saying and you know etc etc but the default position summarizing his position and that of uh, Lord Burroughs because on this point they both agree the the default position is that just because it is not said into the contract there is a default position that he is that uh, Barton is entitled to a reasonable sum and the fact that the parties did not say anything about what if the uh, price of 6.5 million is not reached that is not an exclusion of him being entitled to a reasonable reasonable price so i think the the, the position the position of the majority is that the fact that it's not there negatives or you know excludes the fact that it cannot be there so the i am persuaded by 
the default position is that Barton is entitled to a reasonable remuneration. Uh, he would have been entitled to a £1.2 million if uh, the property had been sold at 6.5. And therefore, just because it doesn't say anything for what has happened, i.e. what is referred to as Plan B, does not exclude his Right. Well, that's the question, yeah. though, isn't it, really? Whether there was a plan Yeah, Maggie, B. go on. What do you think? Um, Are you, do you think? It might be useful. Yeah, well, I, I was just going to say, I, 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 um, I know exactly what Severine means reading Lord Leggett's judgment, and indeed speech, rather, and that of Lord Burroughs. Uh, the word that I would have for those speeches is they're very beguiling. And very elegant, but actually, ultimately, I would suggest to you not convincing. Can I try and persuade you? You can try, Maggie. It's worth... Well, okay, I'll try. I'll try quickly. It's worth for students just peeling back to the sort of very essence of the, um, what they would call the the roots to Mr. Barton's claim, just so a student is is clear if they look at this case, really what what this is about, because there's quite a bit of contract law in there. Firstly, express term, remember, explicitly agreed. And I think all all members of the Supreme Court were agreed there was no express term that dealt with what, if any, commission Mr. Barton was due if the sale came in at less than 6.5 million. So we can jettison that as a route to his solution, as it were. I'd like to come back to that point later on. Well, I think that was found by all members of the Supreme Court, no express term on that point. Uh, It was all on implied term. So now we move to implied term. And this is also quite interesting, I think, because all members of the Supreme Court are again in agreement that there was no implied term as a matter of fact. So if you remember those things about workability and obviousness, I think there is agreement amongst uh, all five that actually Mr. Barton does not succeed on that route either. So effectively, he's left with two routes. One is contractual and one is restitution, unjust enrichment. We can deal with the unjust enrichment. Probably you might want to come back to that. I don't know. But again, all members of the Supreme Court, although I think Lord Burroughs would in the alternative have found unjust enrichment as a route for Mr. Barton, Uh, but certainly four of them, jettison unjust enrichment as a route. That is a non-contractual obligation because the the seller here has been arguably enriched, that is, saved having to pay the commission. But uh, the majority certainly have rejected that. Now, that in itself is quite interesting because I think it, it shows that I, I probably almost say, in fact, I'm going to say, uh, it's an indication of a sort of possessive terrain that is contract law. The Supreme Court is saying basically to restitution, unjust enrichment, you know, this new upstart, get out of it here. Look, this is contract, not your terrain, but out. And that's very clearly coming across, I think. It's only Lord Burroughs a little bit lukewarm on that, possibly because of his academic interest Mm -hmm. in unjust enrichment. (laughs) And that's a point of difference, interestingly, between the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeal. Because the Court of Appeal, remember, would have said, no, sorry, Mr. Barton, you haven't got a contractual route here to what you're claiming, but we'll give it you on unjust enrichment. And the Supreme Court is saying, no, 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 you got that totally wrong, Court of Appeal. 
So that in itself is quite interesting. Supreme Court is staking out the perimeter fence of defence for contract law. So yay to contract lawyers, uh, get out of it, unjust enrichment. So effectively, we are left with the only route uh, that Mr Barton has is this implied term, but as a matter of law. The beguiling elegance, as I put it, of Lord Leggett Uh, and also Lord Burroughs, and they're kind of like um, riding together, I would say, uh, uh, psychologically and mentally, perhaps their their approach is very similar. They are basically saying, ah, implied by law is wider than implied by fact. And we are heavily influenced here by the Supply of Goods and Services Act, 1982. And Lord Leggett builds up this idea of actually, that's really just codification of the common law anyway, which I think is fair comment. And so he's saying, in the absence of anything expressly agreed, then the common law, now probably you'd articulate that in the language of Section 15 of the Supply and Goods and Services Act, Mr. Barton is entitled to a reasonable fee. And that's why Severine, he was going on about this idea of you've got an agreement of whatever it was, 1.2 million if the sale was 6.5 million. Uh, but he's making very a, a great deal of play, I would say, on oral evidence that there wasn't any agreement such that it was articulated as if and only if. Meaning to perhaps a pedantic lawyer, to be fair, the sort of the difference between you only get any money at all if it reaches 6.5 and and simply saying you get this money if it reaches 6.5. Now, it is beguiling elegant, but, you know, it's a very lawyer like way of looking at ordinary language. And do ordinary people actually speak in that way? You know, if and only if. And I would suggest to you, no, they don't. They would say uh, you get 1.2 if we make 6.5 million. That's it. And that's really what Lady Rose, I think, is, is saying. There was an express term, but only on 1.2 million, on a 6.5 million sale. And by its nature, that excludes anything else. And that effectively is what the majority yes. is saying. Are you not persuaded by Ligat's little example of the person going to the top of the cliff and then jumping and that it could actually, some people would interpret that as, you know, she has jumped off the cliff. In fact, no, she hasn't. She's just jumped. Yes. It reminds me very much, it's Hoffman-esque, is yeah. it not, in its play of, of uh, on language. But do you not think that's a, a million miles, really, from uh, the reality <laughs> of what I we've think got here? Is- You get 1.2 million if we make a sale of 6.5. In a way, so yes, it is a pedantic lawyer, but isn't that a beautiful pedantic lawyer argument that actually, unless it is expressly stipulated into the contract, the position of a contract is presumed to include an implied term unless it's been expressly excluded. Therefore, using lawyerly skill to say that actually... Just because it's so precisely because it is not 
said in the contract, then we can find a door by which to slightly open and say, actually, there yeah, is Yeah, but come no off. E- uh, Lord Legger, in many instances, just like Lord Hoffman and Lord Stain before both of them, I, I think, would say the purpose of contract law largely is to meet the reasonable expectations of businessmen or Ladies, we should say now. So, <laughs> yes, and so therefore, here the standards are that all the thing about you know what is implicit and looking at the commercial standards that are applicable that are implicit and not necessarily said, as he said, as Legat said, you know, gosh, guys, you know, you've got better things to do than just putting absolute, it is completely impossible yes. to put everything in the contract and so there is well, a point no. so the pragmatic position the pragmatic position is such that's not pragmatic p- position that is forcing on the parties an agreement which actually they Tim never made smiling. i could this, <laughs> this reminds me of why we started this podcast i could sit here listening to you two all day let me add a little bit of um uh, I promise the spark, so I'm going to add a little bit more. What do we think? Just just stepping back one more step, and let's discuss the facts a little bit more. What do we think the importance is that this is actually an oral agreement rather than a written one? Because all judges make quite a lot of that. And I feel like I'm reading something into it, but it would be interesting to hear what, what you think in terms of what each of them was saying when they try to basically recount the, the the contract well i suppose this this is an aspect of what i'm trying to say about the reasonable expectations of businessmen uh, it's it's oral you might uh, looking at it through the lens of a pedantic lawyer uh, think that's very unwise for a transaction Absolutely. of this nature uh, why was it done orally but by the same token Contract law is trying to meet the reasonable expectations of business people. If that's how they've done business, then that is how they've done business. And the law's responsibility is to give life and meaning to that that they had agreed. So uh, the lawyers and the judges have a, a difficult exercise because, for example, Lord Leggett has written about this, actually, in the Guessman case um, when he was in first instance. Uh, it was something that I think that was quite close to his heart at that point because he, he made a great play about the difficulties of witness recollection and sort of imprinting in one's memory. And there is no such thing as an accurate memory because one's memory gets overlaid by replaying it or listening to other people or reading one's witness statement several times, months after the event. All of that is going to genuinely, honestly, become totally distorted through time. So uh, courts and lawyers have a real difficulty when everything is purely oral. So remembering exactly what somebody said and where there's very little uh, contemporaneous documents uh, makes it very difficult indeed. So they do talk about the paucity of the evidence. So that's uh, an indication to them of the struggle, as it were. And uh, further, for the Supreme Court, remember, they are at least three stages removed from the oral evidence. So when you get to the Supreme Court, there's no live witnesses relaying what they said. All they have got is the transcripts of what happened in first instance. 
and then what was reviewed, as it were, because you don't really get into the, the essence of the evidence on the second time in the Court of Appeal. And they are thirdly removed. So it makes it uh, much, much harder to be absolutely sure uh, that you've got it right in terms of what, has, what was said and what was agreed. Now, that, that's a, a major point, I suppose, of a practical nature, which, Tim, you've, you've alluded to, in this particular case, you would expect something to have been in writing ordinarily, but that's so be it. It's not on this occasion. I know. And, and so for me, yes, that is so in a way it is particularly telling. So I think I am not going to reveal uh, anything that will surprise people when I say I'm a relationalist. And so therefore, actually, in a way that is particularly telling that, you know, we are very far removed from us having a sale failing through and, oh my God, I am out of pocket by 250 quid for them. But here, you know, 1.2 million, it's quite a bit. But it is, it always surprises me actually that for such huge amount of money nothing is reduced into writing so here I am you know my lawyer had things for God's sake guys just we are yes do put something in writing but on the other hand it also reflects the trust the way indeed business people do business but but I think it's also worthwhile looking a little bit at the background facts of this as Tim alluded to at the beginning Mr Barton was out of pocket yes he had no moral or legal claim against anyone to recover his 1.2 uh, expenses. He'd lost them through his own commercial judgment for good or ill. OK, and it was the seller here. That's where the talent comes in. OK, it was the seller here. If you look at the sort of background, the, the, the feel of this is they had a mutual interest in the sense that and only in this sense, uh, Mr. Barton would like to recover his 1.2 million. What a surprise, wouldn't we all? Uh, and equally, the seller wants to get rid of this property. And a, a number of sales, for one reason or another, it's obviously been difficult to market. So they had a meeting of interests, if you like, in this tiny little area. And so reading in the background, it seems to me, and I think that probably was influencing factor for the majority, I would suggest, it was the seller saying, well, look, Barton, we do have a common interest here. You, it's for your 1.2 and we want to get rid of the shop. If we can get a sale for 6.5, then in our budget, as it were, you could get back your 1.2. And that's why I am saying it is pedantic lawyer speak to say, oh, no, uh, what they really meant but didn't say was you get your 1.2 million but maybe something else if the sale is less than that. It's not actually what they were talking about, if you think about it. And that's really, I think, what Lady Rose is trying to say. And then to use, as uh, Lord Leggett does, interestingly, a point that only came up in the Supreme Court, not in first instance or court of appeal. That's terribly interesting. Only used the point about the, uh, the statute and this idea of a reasonable remuneration. That suddenly comes up as an argument on the third time of, of trying here, Mr. Barton. Lord Leggett seizes on that and says, ah, that's a good answer, because we can say there is an implied term as a matter of law because of the statute, and because it's an implied term by uh, a matter of law, the burden of disproof 
is on this instance that the seller, not Mr. Barton, and because it was an oral and there's no contemporaneous documents, they've got real trouble here. They can't displace that presumption that he's entitled to a reasonable remuneration. Uh, that's in part why I say this is sort of elegant, very clever, uh, and therefore beguiling reasoning. But actually, it's, I would suggest that the majority are right. This is very far removed from actually what the deal was. But so could we could we stop with that? So so if we if we say for a moment that it being an oral agreement and people can't re really re recollect properly and all this kind of stuff, yeah. where do we stand then with the position of the court that the court English court has traditionally always taken, which is it is not our job to improve on the bargain. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's a solid position that's always been taken. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's their their difficulty the is principles. working out what the bargain was. Quite. So are we considering here that we might have a different approach then? Could, is there room with that in acknowledging that, that maybe this isn't the full agreement or not a very good recollection of the agreement, that the court in fact has some room to then say, maybe this is really what you agreed. This is, this no, is what you recollect. No, that, that, but maybe there's some room close. here to improve on the bargain. Yeah, and, uh, that, that's sounding very close to making a bargain. The job is merely to work out what their bargain was. Well, no, we know that there is a bargain. Yes, but that... that... So we're talking about two different things here. And I think we are now going from implied term to, to interpretation, which I always had in mind. But the... We are moving here from saying this is what you recollect, but that may not be accurate. In fact, what is much more likely is that you agreed why. No, for me, it's clear that it is not interpretation. I think it is really clear. No. You know, the, the, whole, the whole thing is does what does the silence mean? Does it mean yeah. that yeah, yeah. it is absolutely clear that it was the 1.2 million is only available in one yeah. set of circumstances yeah. and because this we have a, yeah, this is only if. On the if. Yeah. or yeah. does that mean that okay so the payment is 1.2 if the sale is 6.5 or a reasonable yeah. remuneration in no you see other... that's that's the that's the creative bit ah, is what i'm but, suggesting yeah, that's, but that no that's where we disagree <laughs> that actually the default position is that yes they didn't say it, it was not discussed, but can the silence be interpreted as an exclusion? Well, no. Uh, well, actually, no. If, if you look at the language of the Supply of Goods and Services Act, a reasonable remuneration applies as an implied term, originally by common law, now by statute, unless the parties have agreed something else. And the majority here are saying... The parties did agree something else. There is no room for this. And that is why it is not surprising that nobody went on about it at first instance or court of appeal. It has no relevance. It's only that it was seized upon by Lord Leggett and Lord Burroughs as a mechanism for the route, as it were, to what they obviously felt was the correct uh, outcome. 
So the reasoning, they are using that statute uh, as a main plank of the reasoning. And that's the point of difference, I think, between the majority and the minority, because the majority is saying it has no relevance. It might be very different if we change the facts and have this an ordinary sale uh, with an estate agent. All right. Nothing like recovering expenses and all this sort of gambling in the background, as it were, uh, Mr. Barton and these and these people in these sort of business arrangements. Uh, Section 15 is much more about that sort of bog standard ordinary transaction. So if the seller says nothing to the agent about what commission, then naturally the common law, now we would see it in the language perhaps of section 15, would say, okay, that doesn't mean the contract fails for lack of an essential term because the common law can fill that by saying, okay, you said nothing about the remuneration. It's a reasonable remuneration. What is the market going rate for an estate agent's commission on a sale of a house of this nature? That is a million miles factually from the Mr. Barton trying to recover his his wasted expenditure in the past on dealing in property. I I like the idea of the too uncertain bit, and I think that was picked up by um, Lady Rose as well. But on on the if and only if point, I mean, a lot is is placed on risk allocation, right? Who is is taking the risk for this not happening? And Legat picks up on this, and I'm not quite sure I agree with him on, on... on his position on, on risk allocation as a, as a function within contract law, I think I think it's actually quite fundamental. But if we if we look at the language here, the you know it's not mentioned at all, and the fact that all conclude they hadn't really put their mind to it, is that then the correct risk allocation? The fact that both parties had not thought about it at all, that the risks should then fall on Mr. Barton. Yeah, they'd not thought about it. But he was just doing simply it simply because for fun. it was not part of the agreement. You know, you don't think of things that are not part of your agreement. That is the basic point I think the majority are trying to make. The agreement was, Mr. Barton, you have a chance of recovering your wasted expenses. You are you've already lost them effectively. They are lost unto you but we're giving you the chance of getting them back if the sale makes 6.5 million. I haven't thought about what trousers you're wearing or the colour of your sweater or all the other things that might be in the background because they're not relevant. The sale has to make 6.5 million. That's why it's sort of pedantic thing about, oh, did they say if but only if? Well, you know, ordinary business people don't speak like that. It's in implicit in what they're saying if we make 6.5 million then you you could clear your 1.2 but it still leave the space of what happens if we don't make 6.5 no that's what i'm saying there is no space because the whole heart of the bargain is it makes 6.5 uh, true then there's the good faith point that probably severine you want to pick up and it's a very nice one actually If the seller manipulates the price by uh, a bit sharp practice with the buyer, so it comes in at 6.49, whatever. Do you know what I mean? That would be, and I agree entirely that I think all uh, the majority... Yeah, the majority as well did say... Everyone would say, yes, that would be a very good uh, example of an implied 
qualification, if you like, on the bargain that they have reached, that in uh, achieving whatever sale price is achieved, there will not be any bad faith in manipulating that figure. So, yeah. So, of course, I'm going to jump on, on the good faith or the dirty trick. But for me, that yeah, is... Yeah, I think that's Lord Leggett makes that point yeah, he, in that he, setting. He does make that yeah. point. But that was also mentioned... To me, that is interesting, but, you know, it didn't happen. I think perhaps what no. is more interesting is the fact that straight after the sale, the Fox Space offered a goodwill payment of £430,000. So, therefore, in a way, it shows that it must have entered their mind. I know they didn't No, write- it doesn't at all. Oh. How much of these... Oh, but we no, can't take look, that into account, on. though, can we? Ex post facto. How much of these parties spent in legal costs in fighting this first instance Court of Appeal, Supreme Court. This could purely be a commercial judgment that actually to pay the guy something is a cheaper solution than fighting this through three layers of court. Uh, God knows what the legal bill is on this one. (laughs) Yeah, very, very expensive. So that could simply be, it happens every day of the week, a commercial judgment uh, what can we pay to get ourselves out of this uh, hassle? You know, they are business people. They're, they're probably into property. I don't know what their, their business is. But they're certainly not into uh, legal proceedings and the wasted expenditure and managerial time in that. So, you know, uh, offering him something to get rid of it must happen every day of the week. <laughs> And you can't conclude from that. No, you can't conclude from that whether whether there is any rights or wrongs. Okay. I think Tim wants to say a word from our sponsor. Oh, you took it away. I had it all lined up oh, as well. Do you, I was, do you know I who knows everything about? I was giving you a, about... a neat lead in. Oh. I was giving you a neat lead in. I had it all worked out and set up. Do you know who else has got it all worked out? And set... No, okay. Um, our sponsor. No, that works. Keep going. Keep going. That works. That works. Uh Newcastle Law School is now offering a brand new LLM in emerging technologies and the law. Find out how law, economics, politics and society intersect in a digital world. Visit ncl.ac.uk to find out more. Thank you, Newcastle well, Law School. I suppose School. that's interesting. Yeah, sorry. Thank you, Newcastle. Um, I suppose that's interesting because this case, like many of the ones that we are arguing about, actually do, you know, it's contract law. So this is commercial life. Uh, so digital is sort of a modern way of, of seeing that, but it's uh, law is not an island. So I suppose a, a module or a program that that you're running at Newcastle that sees law in its business context, uh, it must be very useful to, to ordinary people. It, it's you know it's only old stuffy people like me are only interested in black letter law. And but the- you know most modern people want to see economics and uh, politics and how law sits with business and so Absolutely. Forth. So, yeah, and the I comparative contract law course is amazing. But Maggie has not received any remuneration from... No, I haven't. To be I've, had no, I've not had any of my 1.2 million commission, to, to which I feel... I am honestly due in good faith. And there's a good faith in there. I'm, I'm, this is, yeah, this is too much for me. I can't. Um, 
that, that, I, was, I, for yeah. that was for Severine. For all the Severine. audience and, and for Severine. Um, let's jump into Unjust Enrichment for a minute because that is one of the, the... You haven't said what you think. Oh, I have I have a whole I have a whole thing. I'm going to reveal I'm going to reveal all. Oh, I um, see. How very coy of you. Right, right. No, I do I no, I, we'll come to that in a bit. Um, because I okay. think we can get rid of unjust enrichment fairly quickly, can't we? Well, that's a bit rude, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it's an emerging area of great importance, is it not? But um, She says after she... I was going to say it's been emerging for, for a, a rather long time. Um, well, not when you compare oh God, the common get... law contract law, for goodness sake. You know, are you trading 800 years or so... The next few conferences are going to be difficult for us, isn't it? If if anyone and any any of the lawyers know, are going yeah, to be please there, don't, please don't. Please let's don't let's not go down that route. Yeah. And yeah, um, <laughs> right. Sorry if there are restitution lawyers we, listening. We do love you. Unjust enrichment is really important. Uh, as a as a civil lawyer, you know, obligations is part of. It well done, Severin. Thank I you. I thought it was quite neat. Um, I can't remember who said this, but. Um, You'll probably correct me. Um, I thought it was quite neat. Uh, one of the uh, the lordships, it might have been Lady Rose, I don't know, um, talking about unjust enrichment and uh, saying that it was concerned with qualification of consent as opposed to impaired or vitiated consent. And it's the impairment or vitiation is the sort of uh, bog standard contract law uh, way of looking at things. That is um, mistake, duress, undue influence, for example. So, so uh, we we contract law does have a lot in common, I think, with unjust enrichment. There's a sort of touchstone or a, a point of meeting, um, uh, but um, the the Supreme Court here is is referring to unjust enrichment as a qualification of consent. In other words, this money uh, or this benefit, this enrichment that the seller has, it's a qualified right to retain that, as it were. I don't know what you wanted to say about unjust enrichment. I, I'm not an expert. Oh, well, I can't claim to be an expert on anything, of course. No, but I. Um, I don't think any of us are, so let's talk about it. Um, <laughs> it's what we do best. Um, I think we qualify that even in our introduction, don't we? It's, uh, unqualified, unsolicited opinions is what we deliver. Unqualified yes. well, the, and unsolicited. The case that they noted was Benedetti and Sororis, if yes. I'm saying it right. So uh, restitution, unjust enrichment lawyers out there, uh, perhaps that is a, a bog standard, a very well-known case, much like we would say Hadley and Baxendale mm-hmm. is, is very well-known to contract lawyers. But Bened, Bened, Benedetti? And Sororis, I don't know. Who knows anything about that? I you don't. don't. Okay. I, I wrote down other uh, other cases. Actually. Well, I, ju- I just made a note of the four steps, which I suppose is very uh, well know, known yes. to restitution yeah. lawyers. That has the defendant yes. been enriched? Yeah. Uh, is it at the claimant's expense? Was that unjust? And are there any defences? So I think that four things yeah. comes from the Benedetti case, maybe many others. I wrote these down as the Dargamo. So I don't know whether that's the Benedetti, you know. Yeah, I only, yeah. I wrote it down as it was summarized by Lady Rose in bracket Dargamo. So forgive us restitution lawyers if, you know, we 
clearly show ignorance. We are showing great ignorance, uh, but ignorance. at least we are uh, acknowledging that ignorance. <laughs> a great, great thing <laughs> yes. we're doing there. Yes. So, if if we if we were for, to assume for a moment that they didn't have a contract and that Mr. Barton just simply introduced um, the the buyer, do we think there would have been a benefit then? I mean, would have, would would we be able so to go no, down the... So no agreement at all about co- commission, none, none of that, Quite. all of that stripped yeah. away, uh, just purely that he was assisting the seller in finding a buyer. And he'd and made quite motivation... a lot of losses, you know, along yeah, the way. Okay, his motivation was, you know, was to recover. Okay, the motivation was to recover those losses, but there was no bargain with the seller. Nevertheless, he had incurred some effort, as it were, and I think Lord Leggett made that point here as the justification point for the implied term, actually. Mr Barton had made a considerable effort to assist the seller here. Is the effort the point or the benefit? No, in the implied term sense, I think that was a relevant point for the minority. Yes. That is not about the unjust enrichment point. Uh, you're quite right, Tim. That, that I think, is purely focusing on what uh, benefit or enrichment. And so, well... The- da, da, da. You heard, you heard that, that, right, Severine? You, you heard that? Yes. Yeah, I, 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 did. I just... I yeah. did. If, if you think was, about it... The, your the, face was beautiful, Tim. Oh, my God. If you think about it, the, right. the effort that Mr Barton went to is likely to be reflected in a benefit to the seller if it comes off as it were uh, but they're not necessarily the same values so you're, you're exactly. quite right we need the, to focus yeah. yeah so we need to focus on what benefit the seller has had uh, i suppose one could argue they have saved themselves the the normal commission that would have been paid to a, a, a standard estate agent. So I suppose you could uh, qualify, uh, quantify it in those terms and see that that uh, is an enrichment. Uh, and I think the, the Lordship said uh, the, the only question in this case would be, if it is a question of unjust enrichment, whether here that enrichment was unjust. So there wouldn't have been an argument as to enrichment because of the benefit which the seller gained from Mr. Barton's activities. So I think you, you, if you strip away all the contractual trappings, if you like, from this, strangely enough, I think you're right. Mr. Barton's position would be stronger. Well, to, to the extent at least that they'd asked for it. I think, I think that's, that's an important part, is that probably they would have had to somehow indicate that they wanted him to introduce... Or, or simply uh, sitting by and not saying anything and allowing him to go on and do all of this work. Kind of for acquiescence him. I mean, type. Inter- yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 would, I would be worried about that, not knowing any uh, unjust enrichment law, really. Um, but but I, I think his case would have been stronger. Of course, not for the 1.2 million, but for whatever a reasonable commission uh, would have been uh, for the price that was. A, a, yeah, maybe so. So actually, he's in a worse position because of the bargain that they struck. Which is an interesting point, isn't it? Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering, and this is, this is not something that could have been changed, I think, at the Supreme Court, because, and I did, I did promise I was going to reveal a suggestion. Um, I don't think this is something that could have been remedied at the Supreme Court element, but in the fact that this was an oral agreement, 
Um, I wonder whether at first instance the finding of facts was not quite as elegant as it could have been. I wonder whether the bargain that was actually struck was Mr. Barton saying, I need to recover 1.2 million. Foxconn then saying, Fox Pace, Fox whatever they are, Fox, Fox Pace, Pace. Uh, saying, I, okay, that's great. We're looking for 6.5 million. And they're going, okay, cool. Let's carry on on that, on that basis. Neither foreseeing, of yeah, course. That's too vague. What the hell does any of that mean? Well, I would have assumed that it meant that if Mr. Barton introduced someone to them and they accepted that price, calculating in, of course, that 1.2 million is due, then actually the purchase price didn't really matter that much. Why? Because to me, commercially, that makes most sense because... No, I, I don't see that. Mr. Barton has no influence on the final negotiations. But Foxpace has every every option to say, right, we've factored in the 1.2 million. We're not going to enter into agreement with them because that's too expensive for us. What are you saying? Do you forgive me, but I don't Well, two your points. One, one is that the, the finding of fact of what the deal was, was sounds to me not like the most commercially reasonable explanation. The most reasonable explanation was that Mr. Barton wanted his 1.2 million. Mr. Barton... No, that's just that's viewing it purely from Mr. Barton's perspective. Well, not really, not really, because if we if we well, consider if we consider who has the influence over this, right? Foxpace always has the option of saying no, right? They, it's it's not like the, he's the agent and he's going to enter into an agreement. Mr. Barton's their agent and he's going to sell for whatever price. That's not what's happening. What's happening is is that Foxpace had every opportunity to say, right, if we get a fine buyer from Mr. Barton's end. We have to add 1.2 million to whatever the price is going to be. No, that's that, that's cart about the horse, as it were. <laughs> um, if if the sale is 6.5 million, mm -hmm. then we've done our calculation. We've got room to pay you your your 1.2 mm -hmm. that you're desperate to to recoup. That's it. The, the seller has no moral or legal obligation to Mr. Barton for 1.2 or indeed any sum. But who can influence the price? And it is Foxpace who can make that decision. Foxpace is in the best position not, to be able to say, you know what, we're not entering into a deal with that the, person. No. And Mr. No, Barton the, can't no, influence the, the, price, the price. The price is, a, is arrived at by the market yep. and they already had difficulties finding a buyer. And all of this uh, comes to be writ large because the eventual price that they were able to achieve was, of course, less than the 6.5 million that they wanted to recover. So it's all about what the seller's asset is uh, worth on, in the market and what the maximum sum that they can achieve themselves to uh, on a sale of their asset. But it's a simple calculation I would make as a seller. Right. If I if I hire two estate agents, one gets five percent and the other one gets two percent. Um, on on each in each scenario, I factor that in. The actual agent who's introducing me has no influence on the price that ultimately I'm going to decide. And why would Mr. Barton agree to uh, to 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 introduce someone? Because he was this was his only chance now to recoup. His 1.2 losses, a considerable sum. Uh, you know, it, this but was a gamble. But he couldn't say, no, 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 hold on, don't, don't 
enter into an agreement with with but then you would have lost he's taking i'll he's introduce taking you to somebody else he's taking the risk he, he's already out of pocket to the tune of 1.2 million this is his last chance to recover that money it is purely a, a, a risk and he takes the view that it's worth doing some work to assist this sale because this is his chance, his only chance now. Uh, if the sale makes 6.5 million, then he recoups his 1.2. So he's got every motivation to, to assist the sale and to maximise that sale price. And the market price is what determines the eventual sale. I'm sure the seller would have been quite happy uh, if the sale had come in at 6.5 or indeed a higher sum. But it, 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 they couldn't find a buyer at that price. There was some problem yeah. with HS2 yeah. planned line going close to the wretched building. And that's what depressed the eventual yes. sale price. So the seller could say, you know, we're, we're also the loser here, actually, because we wanted 6.5 million and our uh, budget and our planning and our business model and our assets, maybe our solvency, who knows? Because we don't know the background of that is all predicated on getting at least 6.5 million. OK, we are factoring in our commitment to Mr. Barton for 1.2 if it makes 6.5. And that's where I come in. If it makes 6.5. Where we disagree. Yes. Well, because ordinary people don't speak like that. You don't say, you know, I will give you pocket money, dear child, if, but only if, you do your homework. Yes, you just I'm fairly sure yeah, that's exactly right, that's my sure that's what I tell my <laughs> I, will give, I will give you pocket money if you do your homework. Have you done? Have you done uh, darling practice? No. Okay. There you are. <laughs> it's it's how normal people speak, surely. Uh, I, have, we, have we convinced you? I don't think we have. Or I haven't convinced anybody by the sound well, of it. <laughs> I don't think that was ever going to be an option. I mean, we didn't start oh, this on, okay. on the premise that okay. if and only if we all agreed well, we would end the podcast because we'll be going on for a long tried. time. I have tried. Absolutely. absolutely. Tim, are yes, you going to come off the fence now? Whether you are on the yeah. dissenting judges... Four, four again. Well, okay. So I, 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 I don't think I don't think the facts are quite as clear um, on and and also again. And this is where Maggie and I have disagreed on in previous podcasts. The difference between interpretation and construction. I think they could have gone further on construction How? here, particularly, particularly because um, it was an oral agreement, right? And and we, I mean, it was five years ago. What the parties yeah. said, and I think there's much more in there that 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 the court well, the court could, has to done. do has to do its best with yeah, the evidence it has. You know, absolutely. So life, that's, that that is where we is are. Not, that, that I not, will yeah, accept. Yeah, 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 yeah. Life is not um, perfect. So from that point of view, um, I entirely agree, and I I also agree with the position that that the court should not be trying to improve the bargain between the parties. I do not find the implied term um, argument 
no, no, go on, go on. Carry on, carry on. Yes. One last ditch at the leg out <laughs> legacy. Are they trying to improve the deal? No, they're just trying to show what the deal really was. Yeah, it's a difference of interpretation as to yeah. to what the deal yeah, was, I, I suppose. Given the, the paucity of the evidence, and as you say, everything was oral five years ago, it makes it very dif- difficult. So that's that's the other point I would have been willing to go down, is to say actually, there was no agreement, right? This was a unilateral offer. The unilateral offer was not accepted. Um, can't have been, right? Well, that, that would be a very years. easy uh, way to jettison the whole thing then. You're not entitled to anything. Well, no, because we all agreed earlier on that if he'd not had an agreement with them, then unjust enrichment would come in, based on the fact, not for 1.2 million, obviously, but actually then we would say, well, the parties never agreed on anything with this regard. That, that contract has nothing to do, basically, with this. And actually we, we have either a new deal, um, unlikely because nothing was said, um, or we can go down the unjust enrichment route here well, and say... Uh, uh, we're not an unjust enrichment restitution uh, uh, Yeah, lawyers, so I'm going to be very careful we? with but that one. I think, I think the background uh, would be very relevant to this on the question of whether it's unjust or not. So even yeah. if you remove all the trappings, as I was saying, of contract law, I don't think that's the end of the story, that the context and the discussions and everything else would be relevant. Yeah. What I found particularly interesting here was... I think Lady Rose mentioned that in part was the fact that the benefit is fairly difficult to define uh, and there's nothing really to give back. And the possibility of giving something back is quite, quite difficult here. So that was one of the points that I really thought was quite interesting. What do you and, mean the benefit is um, difficult? Well, you've, you've benefited by Mr. Barton's services uh, in whatever uh, way he was uh, operating in order to smooth the passage of, of a sale, uh, you'd simply have to find, you know, courts dealing with that difficulties of quantification day in, day out. They just have to find a figure that uh, fairly represents the benefit uh, that the seller gained from that and hasn't paid for. That's well, That would be purely an assessment. The, the benefit is clear. Barton introduced... The buyer. Yes. So yeah, the the difficulty. I think Tim's point is the difficulty is putting a figure to ah, that. Ah, okay. I think that's just that's just on what the one hand. The other hand the is time. to the extent that they actually asked for it, right? Lady Rose, I think, has has difficulties with that uh, when she's talking about unjust enrichment. Is that basically they didn't ask Mr. Barton to introduce anyone. They only asked him to introduce someone at the level of six point five million. Right. So. So and then okay. we then we define so, the value. If, so if you're saying there was no benefit, therefore that's really an argument. There was yep. no benefit to the seller for any introductions uh, by would-be purchasers at less right. than so six point five. So we could we could compare that we could compare that yeah. with the with okay. the and that that, that I find interesting. I, um, it, it's the same kind of thing. If someone came came along and decided to you know dump five hundred liters of water in my front garden um that i never asked for i can see that someone would value 500 liters of water quite a lot 
but there's no value to me. Uh, yeah, but uh, well, we're, we're straying into restitution. Well, exactly. That's so the part I can't of point really I find from it. But would that would that well, be quite. a benefit to you? It's not a benefit in the abstract. Uh, it must surely. And be I think that is part of what we're struggling with here. Defendant right? is, rather is, has is benefited. If they never asked him to do that, so if I say only introduce people to me that are going to be pay, going to be willing to pay six one point five million, and he introduces someone who's going to pay six million, yeah, yeah, that's not what they asked for. Well, you restitution lawyers uh, might have an answer to that. It might relate also to that separate uh, factor Absolutely. of whether it's and unjust. Are... Uh, and I don't, I don't know. The, the, these these four stages might not be as watertight, hermetically sealed from one another as perhaps you know. In in my ignorance, I, I might think, but I can see there's a sort of uh, relationship across all four of them in in a sense. So. Uh, I, I, I don't I don't I don't really know. Don't if know there are restitution lawyers sorry. out there who would like to give us a steer on that, do drop us an email yes. unpacking. Yeah, or, or, or do your own or, or do, do your own <laughs> podcast. We're back to what we start that, off with with Maggie telling people to butt out. Um, uh, <laughs> do drop us an email <laughs> unpacking.contract.law at gmail.com if you have any thoughts on this or yeah. if you think we've got it wrong and we we may or may not pick that up. If you do, and also if you've got any cases you want us to discuss, yeah. um, that would yeah, be really yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, I thought I'd drop our email in there again. We have some suggestions, and I think we have a suggestion for the next podcast as well. Um, but anyway, yes, that was that was a... Um, yeah, we don't really know much about restitution. So where do I sit on this one? That was the question, wasn't it? Um, I don't find the implied term... Although yes. I don't think the decision is correct, I do not find the implied term basis... Uh, to be <laughs> successful. How how is this working then? You you don't agree with the majority, and, and yet that you just don't means agree I should be. And you so, know what? Um, that just means well, I should be on the Supreme Court. Clearly. Yeah, Ma Maggie, you agree with the majority. So I disagree. So therefore, <laughs> yeah. and so didn't I predict it? Didn't I predict it? The third way. So so we're going to have to wait for the judgment to come out from Dr. Dodsworth as to what the Supreme Court should absolutely, really Absolutely. Absolutely. Why not? I that, what a what a what a note to end on. Great. So okay. in in the summary we have as little clue as anybody else about restitution. Um, and we do not agree in any yeah. kind of way at all. I think I think that's the perfect uh, with one another. With one another. Someone. With, well, we agree with, with various... I agree uh, with myself. Yes, yes. <laughs> I was sometimes, about to say, I'm not, I'm not sure I can sign up to that either. Always. I'm not sure I always agree with myself at all. Um. Is it HMS Pinafore? Something about never or hardly ever. <laughs> There's a song, ah, okay. I think. Sorry. People out there who are who are Gilbert and Sullivan uh, devotees uh -huh. might know that we'll one. Take your word for it. On that note, thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you in the next podcast. Thank you. Thank you. See you next time. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. bye.